The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I went back and looked at what I had been talking about before I went away for eight weeks. (laughs) And um, I think starting sometime in June, I had been starting with a series on the Four Noble Truths and going through in detail the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. um, The Buddha at one point said that all of the teachings that he gave could be found within the Four Noble Truths, within this framework. And so going through the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, step by step, slowly, I've been covering a lot of the Buddha's teachings. I'm just going to continue with that. So um, the the topic that I feel like we're at today would be the Eightfold Path. But today I'd like to um, put it kind of in context of the Four Noble Truths as a whole. Um, so I'll just, I'll cover the Eightfold Path briefly today, the, the, all the parts, and talk talk a little bit about how this path supports us in a, in a general way. How, how does it actually help us to come to the end of our struggles? So the, um, to set this in the context of the Four Noble Truths, I'll start by just reviewing the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the First Noble Truth, the truth of suffering, the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering. The third noble truth, the truth of the cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path, the truth that there is a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. So this teaching, the four noble truths, is to, to put it into a, a context. Basically, the Buddha was trying to solve what he saw as the problem of human existence, why we struggle, why we are not living in line or in tune with our experience, our environment. What is it that creates this sense of difficulty in our lives? And so this question of dukkha, the truth, the suffering, the truth of suffering, is kind of at the center of his exploration. He looked out at the world after his awakening, and he um, had come to an understanding that the whole way that we live our lives, the whole way that we generally go about trying to find happiness, is just completely backwards. That we usually go about trying to find happiness by getting what we want by trying to arrange the world in a way that um, pleases us. Whether it's having things that please us, getting rid of things that don't please us in the material world, or whether it's creating a sense of being someone who is in control, who has value, who is respected, who has what they want. So that, that it's, it's not only the, um, the side of kind of creating a world that 
put, surrounding ourselves with, say, pleasant things and getting rid of unpleasant things. It's not just the material world that we struggle around. It's really a sense of identities also that we struggle around, wanting to be respected and liked and valued. And when we're not experiencing that, then we suffer. So the Buddha looked out at the world and said, said that when he had his awakening, he discovered actually we're doing things backwards. You know, the trying to get what we want, the trying to arrange our lives so that we can have what we want, whether it's an identity or material things, that that's actually reinforcing this the suffering, this, this struggle itself, because we often find that as we try to go about getting what we want, we struggle in that process. And even if we, so, you know, maybe we, we try to go about getting what we, we want and we don't get what we want. Well, there we struggle right away. We try to get what we want and we do get what we want. Then we may not be suffering immediately. In fact, this is a lot of how the whole process reinforces itself. You know, we, we get what we want and it's like, yeah, I figured it out. This is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is how it's supposed to be. Whether it's having the material things or whether it's having a respect of dear friends, we feel like, yes, this is, this is it. This is right. This is the way it's supposed to be. And... Yet, because things are impermanent, there's an inevitable falling away of that. Things are out of our control. You know, the, the things that we surround ourselves with, material things, inevitably decay or disappear or lost or stolen or whatever. Or they simply become less interesting to us. So there's that kind of fact of impermanence. And the, inside, the side of identity, if you look at the way we want to find, you know, find happiness about our identities, generally it depends upon the opinions of other people. It depends on other people respecting us, other people valuing us, other people liking us. And we have no control over the opinions of other people. And so they fluctuate. One day they like us, one day they're frustrated with us. One day they respect what we're doing, another day they don't. So the, this whole process of dukkha, the, the Buddha's word for this, he says, you know, we're doing this backwards. We're trying to create the world to be the way we want it to be. But actually what he discovered was that the letting go of the wanting it to be any other way than how it is naturally unfolding, that is what would lead to true happiness. So one kind of shorthand way to phrase this is it's not the not having that makes us suffer, that makes us frustrated, that makes us struggle. It's the wanting to have that makes us struggle, that makes us suffer. 
Now this is a kind of the key piece that the Buddha recognized that, you know, it's, it's kind of like just turning the whole picture around about what will make us happy rather than endlessly trying to get what we want. Maybe it's possible to let go of the wanting. So this is the second noble truth. The dukkha, the truth of suffering, is the first noble truth. And this truth of, of the cause of suffering, this wanting things to be other than they are. This is the truth, the second noble truth. And the Buddha uh, proposed that the letting go of that wanting will lead to happiness, will lead to a deeper sense of happiness. Not, not necessarily the happiness that means there's no unpleasant experience in your life, but the happiness of being at ease with whatever is happening. So this is the possibility that the Buddha points to, this happiness, the third noble truth, the the happiness of the ending of this dukkha, the ending of this suffering, the ending of the wanting things to be other than they are. So he points to this as being possible. This is possible for us. And the path that he offers, the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path is the path that he says will lead us to this possibility, lead us to this recognition, realization of the ending of struggle. So I want to um, kind of frame the Four Noble Truths based on um, the actions the Buddha says. So he, he laid this out kind of as a teaching. You know, this is the way we typically struggle. You know, we, we have this wanting things to be other than they are, which leads us into this suffering. So the wanting and the suffering go hand in hand in the normal way that we live our lives. So these first two normal truths are kind of a description of how we usually live our lives. And the third and fourth noble truths are a description of how we could live our lives such that we could let go of, kind of, kind of reorient our, our direction of how we live our lives so that it heads us instead of back into suffering over and over again, back into struggle, back into frustration. It heads us in the other direction, towards happiness, towards letting go. So in this context, the Four Noble Truths are a description of how things are for us in our lives, the First and Second Noble Truths, and how we can uh, move away from the, that trap that we find ourselves in endlessly. And to do this, he, he turned the Four Noble Truths into practices. So the way that we normally live our lives, the wanting and the struggle, he gave specific actions around each of those truths. He said that we need to understand this struggle, this suffering. We need to actually understand what it is in our lives. Now this understanding is not an intellectual understanding. It's an, it's an experiential understanding. So... Not, not so much this understanding, not so much about thinking about, oh, I'm suffering in this way, what, you know, what is this about, and you know, how did this happen to me, and oh, you know, I had this thing happen when I was a kid, and it was miserable, and I can see how there's like, you know, I'm replaying that pattern right now. 
that isn't what the Buddha is talking about in terms of understanding suffering. There's some benefit to that. I'm not going to dismiss that completely because I have actually seen in my own experience and in my own practice that there can be a benefit to seeing how patterns form and how patterns are repeated in our lives. There's definitely benefit in that. But the Buddha was pointing us actually to look in this moment how are we suffering here and now? What is that experience? Rather than having our, exp- our attention directed outward to the world, how can I fix the world? How can I arrange the world? How can I um, get people to respect me, like me, value me? He suggests turning around to the feeling. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel right. This feels, I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I feel irritated. I feel pride or conceit or whatever it is that we are feeling contracted around, he suggests turning towards that experience. That's what he means by understanding. So an experiential understanding. What is happening in our minds and bodies that are going on around this process of suffering? In that process, you get to see a lot. And we actually start to see in that process of understanding suffering that... What's happening to us in this moment, the suffering of this moment, is actually being created in this moment. Now it may be pulling in memories of the past. You you may be remembering something that happened when you were a kid in the moment and reacting to that in the moment. Somebody does something that reminds you of something that happened when you were a kid. And so that memory comes back and it kind of pulls back with it in the moment. Or not, it doesn't pull back with it. It actually, it, it, in the moment of that memory coming back into our minds, our minds kind of recreate some of the emotional patterns that happened in the past. And then we perhaps respond to the person in front of us through those patterns. So that what's happening in the moment is what we need to understand to really see how this suffering is actually created for us right now. So that's what the understanding of suffering is about. It's turning to look at our direct experience. In the process of turning to look at our direct experience, one of the things that we see as a contributing piece to this suffering is the wanting whenever there's suffering there's going to be some kind of a wanting wanting either to have something we don't have to get rid of something that that we do have a wanting to control or to fix or to manipulate there's some kind of a wanting things to be some way other than they are right now and so we see that that a piece of that suffering as we begin to look, understand suffering, we see that a piece of that suffering is the wanting. And the Buddha says that the action that we can make with this second noble truth is to let go of the wanting. Now this letting go isn't necessarily so easy. I mean, we we can see this wanting and it's like, okay, yep, I see the wanting and it doesn't work to just say, be gone, wanting. <laughs> it doesn't seem to work. So, you know, this, this, 
process around working with the second noble truth, the instruction around the second noble truth, the letting go of the, of the wanting. You know, initially, we can, we can bring in the, the idea of how this wanting kind of contributes to our suffering so that we can recognize that. And that can help a little bit the letting go. And sometimes we can actually actively let go a little bit. We can see, yeah, you know, this isn't helping me out here. I can just stop doing this. But I'd say that's the, the, the lesser amount of the time. So part of the way we begin to let go is by, instead of um, acting on that wanting, and again, it's kind of turning towards the experience. Instead of following through on that wanting, which reinforces that cycle of wanting and having, and then the frustration of the things have, that, that we have that they eventually disappear, dissipate, go. Instead of following through on that, we turn to what does this wanting feel like? Rather than acting on it, we experience it. And this is kind of a form of Again, this is mindfulness. It's turning towards the experience. And this is what we could call a letting be of the wanting. We're neither acting on it, nor are we repressing it, trying to stop it. We're just experiencing it in the moment. What does it feel like to be a human being that wants that pull, that magnetic pull towards whatever it is? What does that feel like? Everything's impermanent, including wanting. And so we begin to see that if we can be mindful of wanting and not act on it, it dissipates, it goes. So the, the mindfulness is a kind of a, a way that we can allow the wanting to let go on its own instead of trying to push away the wanting or act on it. We are aware of it and we see the law of impermanence works in our favor with, with where wanting is concerned. You know, it goes. And we see that when the wanting ends, there's no problem. There's no suffering. There's no need for anything to be other than it is. If there were, if there were nothing to want in this very moment, just envision that, just even in a thought experiment, there were nothing to want. Would there be a problem? So the letting go of the wanting is the second, is the action associated with the second noble truth. The third noble truth, the truth of the ending of suffering, and the Buddha says that it's the ending of the craving, the ending of the wanting, that's the ending of the suffering. And so the practice of observing the letting go of the wanting, in that moment of seeing a wanting end, and sometimes we don't see it end. Sometimes we pay attention to wanting and we, um, we see, and we kind of lose interest in the wanting after a little while, and so we kind of move on to something else, but we don't actually see it disappear. But we see that that particular wanting is no longer functioning for us. We've gone on to some other thing. But sometimes we can actually see when the wanting disappears. And in that, we get a taste of what this third noble truth is. 
this ending of suffering, we see that in the ending of the wanting, for a moment, we experience that peace of there being no problem, that the ending of the wanting is the ending of the suffering. So this again, the third noble truth, the Buddha said that the action associated with this is to realize it. Realize the ending of suffering. Actually recognize it. And so, you know, this, this points to our seeing how when we can let go of suffering or when we can let it be and see it let go, to begin to actually recognize the peace that comes from that to highlight that for ourselves, to recognize that. Then the fourth noble truth, the action associated with the Eightfold Path is the uh, cultivation of it, the development of it. Engaging in the Eightfold Path as practices to support the letting go, to support the understanding of suffering, to support the realizing the cessation of suffering. So all of the actions associated with the first three noble truths are kind of in, in, included in the practices that are taught in the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path is meant to be developed, cultivated. So in the Four Noble Truths as a whole, if we look at, again, the first two noble truths, There's a kind of a cause and effect relationship laid out between the first and second noble truths and the third and fourth noble truths. Second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering, is the cause of the first, the truth of suffering. So the second noble truth is the cause of the first. And likewise, the third and fourth noble truths, the fourth noble truth, the development of of the path is what leads us to the third noble truth. The path leads us to the ending of suffering. And so there's a cause and effect relationship there too. So cultivating the path leads to the ending of suffering. So I want to just talk in brief about the components because I think what I'll do over the next few weeks is go through each component in some detail. But I want to give you an overview and then talk a little bit about how does it work? How does it work that cultivating the Eightfold Path actually does lead us to the ending of suffering? So the Eightfold Path, eight components, wise understanding, wise intention, Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So the normal way that the Eightfold Path is laid out begins with wise understanding and wise intention. And this is um, actually wisdom that is being pointed to here that we have to, in our development of a direction in our lives, to head us towards freedom from suffering. As the Buddha said, you know, we're doing exactly the opposite thing from what we 
what would lead us towards freedom from suffering. What we're doing, our habitual way of acting, is reinforcing this cycle of having and um, wanting and having and wanting and having. And then the frustration around things ha- that we have disappearing. So the Buddha, uh, you know, pointing to this kind of shift of perspective that we need to undergo in order to turn towards freedom from suffering. So we need to have some wisdom, some understanding of h- how how we can turn our lives in this other direction. If our, if our whole life has been lived to this point, kind of automatically following this having, wanting, wanting, having, wanting, having, how do we shift our perspective? So the first noble truth, wise understanding, is kind of that shift of perspective he points to. And the shift of perspective, the main definition of the shift perspective is Four Noble Truths. Understand how this cycle of suffering works, how we get caught by it. So having that understanding, we can begin to see that what we're doing is just trapping us in a wheel. So there is this beginning point of having some kind of an understanding of what is the direction we need to go? How do we need to engage Understand suffering. Let go of the cause of suffering. So from that uh, beginning understanding, and just to, I'm going to put this in a little bit of context here too, because these first two, right understanding and right intention, they begin our path because we can't begin without some kind of understanding, some kind of wisdom. But initially that wisdom is borrowed. We borrow it from others. We learn from reading books, listening to teachers. We, we, we take in information to begin with. And so we borrow that knowledge. And then we begin to reflect on it ourselves. How do we relate to this? What, how does it make sense to us? Can we begin, we begin to massage it with our mind a little bit. So this is how we begin the path. We hear something and we begin to say, hmm, does this make sense to me? Do I connect with this? How could I engage with this? So that's the way wisdom begins us on the path, how we begin the path with this, uh, this wisdom, is to, to hear it and begin reflecting on it, thinking about it. These same um, wisdom, the same definition of right understanding is also understood to come at the end of the path, but not in a kind of a reflective way or a borrowed way. It becomes our own. As we we follow the path, as we engage with these practices, we begin to understand directly for ourselves how wanting leads to suffering. And we begin to see directly how the letting go leads to the ending of suffering. So it's no longer borrowed. It becomes verified. It becomes experiential. And that's where the wisdom begins to grow. It begins to um, become actual in our experience. And so the, the, the path begins with this kind of wisdom and also ends 
with this kind of wisdom. But I like to think of it as a very, it's a cycle, the Eightfold Path, because we, we gain a little bit of experiential understanding, and that motivates us to continue practicing. So it, it keeps, it loops back on itself, this, this path, beginning and ending, in a way, with wisdom. So the, um, this engagement, this borrowing of knowledge, we begin to reflect on it, think about it. And if it resonates with us, we may begin, and hopefully we begin to kind of orient our actions to be in line with the, those teachings. So this is a, a mental shift that we make, a shift of how can I reframe or reorient my um, my intentions to head me in this direction instead of endlessly following through on this wanting, wanting, wanting. So that, that's the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, right intention, wise intention. That once we have a sense of the, the wisdom, we begin to set our intention to engage with the practices that the Buddha suggests. So that's the first two, wise understanding, wise intention. From wise intention comes a wish, in a way, or it's not so much a wish, it's, it begins to motivate our actions to find ways that we can not engage so much in the ways that we have been struggling and suffering. And the since the whole orientation here is around letting go of suffering, not engaging in the cause of suffering, we kind of get oriented around what are our actions? How are our actions in the world that cause suffering? What are the actions that cause suffering for myself and for others? And we begin to want to engage in ways that lessen that suffering. So this is the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, the aspect around ethical conduct, that we begin to wish to engage in ways that don't cause harm, don't cause harm for ourselves or for others. So the Buddha mentioned wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood as ways that we engage in the world, skillful ways to engage in the world, that are in line with this, this path of letting go of wanting and leading towards letting, uh, letting go of struggle, moving towards happiness. So I'll just mention these briefly because I will go into detail on these in the coming weeks. Why speech? You know, why speech is a big one. <laughs> now, if you look at your life, you look at the way you live your life, you know, I think a lot of our suffering comes out of our mouth. <laughs> it, it, uh, the, the, the result of suffering comes because we've said something that we, uh, you know, in a harsh way or a divisive way, or we've lied about something. You know, we, we just endlessly get ourselves into trouble by not being mindful of what we're saying. 
So this is a huge area of mindfulness practice. And I think this, this one area, I mean, it's a hard one, I have to say. It's a hard area to practice with. But it is a great area to explore because so much of suffering in the world comes from things that we say. Then the actions that the Buddha suggests. I'll just mention the four wise speeches first. It's refraining from uh, false speech, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from divisive speech, and refraining from idle chatter, which is the most challenging perhaps for us. But um, just to give you a, a little bit of a sense of relief around this aspect because it is very hard, this one in particular, in the kind of the layout of awakening, of full awakening. There's a few things that, you know, there's, it's staged. Uh, the process of letting go of suffering is staged in a way. There's, it's like we have layers and deeper and layers of things that we let go of. We let go of some layers of things, kind of the obvious layers of the way that we struggle. And, and then, you know, there's subtler layers of ways that we struggle. And the, the, the understanding is that there's four stages of understanding that release layers of the suffering for us. And um, the fourth stage, there's still a few things in the fourth stage that... Um, haven't yet been released, and one of those is idle chatter. So, it'll be with us for a while. (laughs) Then wise action is... um, refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what's not given, and refraining from sexual misconduct. And again, I'll go to this in more detail. But then again, this is, again, this is really about looking at ways our behavior causes harm. How are we engaging in action of body that causes harm? Then wise livelihood. There's some specific occupations the Buddha said that we should not engage in. Um, But really the main criteria is do we have to engage in unwise speech or unwise action in our livelihood? That's how we can begin to see. Are we in in wise livelihood? Is there some way that we're having to engage? Is some, you know, some something that we're doing where we have no choice but to lie? Then we might want to look at is there another way we can engage in that occupation without lying that we just believe that it's possible? I mean, that we believe that we have to lie, or is it actually a part of the system in which that occupation is created? So then we may want to, if you're serious in letting go of suffering, may want to look at how you can find ways to not engage in unwise speech and unwise action in your livelihood. Then the last aspect of the Eightfold Path is cultivating the mind. So we move from cultivating skillful behavior to cultivating skillful mental activity. So we're, you know, kind of moving from the outside in, you know, that we let go of 
unskillful behavior, unskillful speech, there still can be all kinds of stuff going on in our minds that's creating internal suffering. So the ethical conduct aspect is it's kind of about getting the relationship, our relationship with the world, our relationship with our fellow human beings in order. This last aspect of wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration is about getting our internal relationship in order. We have so much suffering that goes on just in our own experience. We have experiences of anger and self-hatred and we have experiences of, of, of pride of, that, you know, it, we, it feels okay, but it kind of feels also kind of icky. So we, we, in our own minds, we experience things that make us suffer internally, even without engaging externally, things that make us suffer internally. So this last aspect of the path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, are the tools that allow us to begin to restructure the inner workings of our mind. This is actually possible. It's kind of amazing, actually, that um, you know these. We all have various habits that have been conditioned into us for our whole lives. Ways that we've engaged, and it's kind of like there are these deep ruts in our minds. That when we get anywhere close to those ruts, it's like a little ball drops in and it's like, I'm stuck in that pattern of anger, boy. You know, it's hard to get out of that. And it kind of reinforces itself. It seems amazing to me that the possibility of actually reworking those ruts, actually eliminating those ruts, it's actually possible to do that. So the, um, the practices, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, through the attending to the experience, this is again, this is where the understanding of suffering comes in. Turning with wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration to our experience, not engaging in those patterns, but just witnessing them. That somehow manages to rework our ruts. There's actually some evidence for this in the neurobiology of our minds. Uh, you know, they, they, they talk about how these ruts are formed through, um, you know, when you engage in a particular pattern over and over again, your nerve cells begin to think, well, this must be an important pattern. You know, I'd better participate in this. And so more and more neural connections come in to support that pattern. It gets stronger and stronger. And so to the point where almost like any cell can fire and lead into that pattern. So that that, you know, the nerves kind of, when we re-engage over and over again, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders, that becomes the inclination of the mind. That's from the Buddha. This is kind of the neural neurology of how that works, the neurobiology. We frequently think and ponder something, the nerves, it's not self, it's not you doing it, it's the biology of your brain putting this together. This must be important. Creating, strengthening those patterns. Then the, um, 
the piece that I love in the neurobiology is that the neuroplasticity, the fact that the brain can change, when we don't engage in that pattern, those nerve cells that have shorted up begin to realize, oh, this one's not so important anymore. And they begin to break the connections with that pattern. So a way to not engage with that pattern is to be mindful of it. It's a completely different relationship to our experience when we're mindful of it than when we're engaging in it. And we can feel that difference. We can feel the difference in... We can feel the difference in the suffering, actually. The more and more we practice the mindfulness, the more we see how when we turn our attention to a pattern, oh, anger's present right now. It's like, oh yeah, okay, there's anger. Now initially, it certainly doesn't feel that way. Initially, it's like, oh my God, this is awful. (laughs) But over time, we get more and more skilled at bringing that mindful attention. And it can just be, oh, there's a pattern arising. And we don't participate in it. And it allows it to fall apart. So this last aspect of the Eightfold Path is what allows the internal patterns to reorient towards happiness and away from suffering. We've spent a lot of time practicing wanting and having. A lot of time practicing that. And so it's not... We can't really just expect that, oh, a few moments of mindfulness to a pattern are going to take it apart. It takes a long time. It's a wearing away. It's a slow, gradual letting go. And if you even think about how the the brain works, you know, it's not an immediate letting go of those neural connections. It's going to take time for those neural connections to weaken. So I had more to say about how this works, how the... Well, I'll just, say, I'll just say a little bit about this and then open it up for questions. Um, so I talked a little bit about the like, different layers of ways that we suffer. And there's one teaching that kind of explores this, different layers of ways that we suffer. And it has to do with whether our um, unskillful motivations and states of mind are kind of expressing themselves in action of body and speech or expressing themselves in the mind. And so there's this, what's understood as three layers of expression of unskillful, unwholesome states of mind, states motivated by greed, aversion, delusion. So the most obvious is those that come out in body and speech. Next layer down is those that are not manifesting in body and speech but are coming up in our mind. So we, we are not acting on our anger, but it's still coming up in our minds. We're not acting on our wanting, but it's still coming up in our minds. So that's the layer, kind of the next layer in around um, how these defilements, how these unwholesome tendencies express themselves. And then in the middle is what is called the latent tendency to 
greed, aversion, and delusion. So this is, this is kind of like that pattern in the brain, right? That's that, that pattern in the brain. It's not firing at the moment, but it's there. You know, if you get anywhere near it, it's, it's going to erupt. So that's what we could call a latent tendency. There are these habitual ways that we have acted and we tend to act in that way, but they may not be present in the moment. And so these three layers of unwholesome tendencies, unwholesome actions, unwholesome minds, states, unwholesome tendencies, each of these is countered by a part of the Eightfold Path. And I kind of pointed to this as I went through it, so that the the unwholesome tendencies that come out in our speech and our actions are countered by the ethical component of the path, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. The unwholesome tendencies that are found in our minds that are not coming out in behavior, those are countered by the, the mental cultivation wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And the latent tendencies, those are countered by the wisdom that develops slowly as we engage in these practices. So wise understanding and wise intention begin to counter those patterns, those kind of ways that we tend to act. So, I've said enough, yes. (laughs) So the popular neurobiology phrasing of what you're talking about, the solidification of patterns, is neurons that fire together, wire together. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing I noticed that you said, which um, I try to practice in phrasing things, anger is present. A lot of people will say, I am angry. When you say things like, I am, you are solidifying that pattern. Yes. Because you're identifying with being anger uh, or being angry. And there's so many ways to look at that. One is that that anger is impermanent. It's going to pass. But you do, I, I experienced this, uh, you, you do reinforce the continuation of anger by saying, I am angry. Mm, mm-hmm. So I like it when we say anger's happening yes. or anger's present because yes. it's going to be there momentarily, but then it's going to dissipate. Something else will come in. Yes. Right? So I, I, just, I just am sort of rejoicing in hearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's present, but it won't necessarily always be present. Yes, and actually the, that points to another piece too. And, you know, the, the noticing... Anger is happening. Um, you know, there, there, is, there can be a kind of rejoicing there. I mean, to see. The seeing of it can bring a sense of, oh yeah, here it is. And it's, it's like while we are actually attending to, paying attention to that, there's a whole bunch of really beautiful qualities, wise mindfulness, wise effort, that are being cultivated. Um, while you're attending to it. And so you're cultivating the Eightfold Path. And so it's actually a helpful piece, not only to just recognize, okay, anger is happening. I mean, the the teaching 
a lot about dukkha. I mean, there's a lot we say about dukkha here. And, you know, we can kind of get oriented on dukkha being the, this is what I have to look at. But we, we can also, in the very noticing of it, see that there's all kinds of beautiful qualities. Compassion is coming. Mindfulness is being cultivated. And that actually recognizing that those are happening too is really helpful. Thank you for your comment. Can I say one more thing? Uh, The thing about being present is, um, I I like to use, I've I've said this before too, a metaphor of being an upright vacuum cleaner. Um, A lot of people think that that they identify with what's in the bag of dust, (laughs) right? (laughs) And that's who I am. And when I'm trying to talk about being in the present moment, I'll say, you're not the dust you're about to pick up, which is your view of the future, and you're not the dust that you've picked up, which is your view of who you are from, you are who you are from your past. You're the energy, you're the, vac, you're the vacuuming energy in the moment that's, that's happening all the time. Ha- it's an energy that's it's, happening right It's a right process, in the yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not... You know, you're you're the vacuum. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, Arthur. Um, <clears throat> so the idea of wanting. Uh, so there must be another way to say this without without. Wanting, but um, uh, for example, um, you want to. Well, there you go. I want to. <laughs> um, there are things you would want that are positive and good motives for it, like wanting to cure cancer, as an example. Um, nevertheless, you're wanting to do that. I mean, so. Uh, there must be some way to clarify the... Yes. Yes. Um, so the wanting that causes suffering has a... has the energy of greed, aversion, and delusion behind it. The, the sense that if I don't get this thing or have this identity, it's a problem. So the, 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 the energy behind the wanting that causes suffering has that. It's a problem if I don't get this thing or have this thing. There's another word, um, chanda. So the word for wanting, craving is tanha and the word chanda it's a neutral word it it means it means desire it means a kind of desire and but this desire can be accompanied by skillful intentions or unskillful intentions so the word chanda is used for instance as the first hindrance kama chanda sense desire so it can be un, it can be hooked up with unskillful things this chanda. But it also can be hooked up with skillful qualities. It can be hooked up with the desire to act. The chanda itself is kind of just this, this, this will, this intention to do. 
And it can be accompanied by compassion. It can be accompanied by generosity, by kindness, by wisdom. So that, the, that those desires, the, the desires that are accompanied by skillful actions will tend to lead us in the direction of happiness. They'll tend to lead us more in that direction. So there are things that we can do that, I mean, the wanting, the kind of, the, the wish to act. There are desires to act that are skillful. And I'd say that the vast majority of us will have in our desire to act a combination of skillful and unskillful motivations in many of our actions. You know, just a simple example, wanting to give somebody a gift. You know, there's, there can be just that pure sense of joy at giving and there can also be a little bit of sense of, and maybe they'll give me something back at my birthday, you know? Just a little bit of wishing for some result from that action. And so in the exploration of wanting, it's helpful to explore which aspects. So what are the motivations present in the moment around that wanting? It, there, there may be some beautiful motivations of wanting to support somebody or to alleviate some suffering. And there may be also some sense that it's not okay if I don't do this right. Just notice the both sides of that. And what I'd like to suggest is in seeing the unskillful and the skillful motivations, not, it's not necessarily that we wouldn't take that action when we see that there's unskillful motivations present. But can we kind of somehow connect or land in the skillful motiv- motivations more strongly? Like in that act of generosity. You know, just because you see that there's a little bit of a wish to get something back doesn't mean that you can't actually connect with and experience the joy of the giving. You know, that, that, that that's a wholesome aspect of the action, the, the generosity, the, 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 wanting, the, the wanting to give. So in exploring the wanting, to look at the intention behind it. That's really the key. So look at what is, the, what is motivating this wanting. And there's, there can be some skillful wanting and unskillful. So kind of recognize, acknowledge the unskillful is there. I mean, that's an important piece, not just to kind of brush it under the covers. It's like, yeah, I see this. I want to get something back here. And feel the, the contraction of that. And feel, on the other hand, the, the kind of open-heartedness of the, of the skillful motivations, how it feels so different when the heart is open in acting versus when it's controlled and contracted. So it's time to stop. So um, I'll continue next week. (laughs) Thank you.